1: The podcast. This is a 14-year-old boy being interrogated by police after his 12-year-old sister was found stabbed to death. It took more than 10 hours over two days, but police got what they were looking for. Do
2: you have any idea
0: who may have wanted to harm your sister? No. Yeah. You we know what happened. We no. you know who did it. No tell me what you did with a knife? What? God, I don't... I, no,
2: I don't know. I did not do it. Just because a person makes
4: a mistake, just because
5: a person does something bad... Oh, God. A, it doesn't mean that the world thinks in him, and B, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person.
2: Oh, God,
5: Good people God, do bad things. God.
1: It's either shannon or it's your grandma or it's your mom or it's your dad or it's
4: you you're at the crossroads what do you have to tell me? what if i t- tell us if i tell you a story the evidence is going to be completely well then tell us the story that night i stopped better you couldn't take it anymore okay Ben and I went a room. Nice
1: you. Well, that was what police were waiting for Michael Crow's confession. It was a crime he later insisted that he did not commit. He says police coerced it from him. So you just saw that. What do you think? Would you be able to confess to a crime that you did not commit? I think if you're beaten down so much uh-huh. that it's possible, even for me, and I think I'm a strong-willed person. Yeah. But I think if if I am so distressed that I can get to that point in my mind, that you I'll can confess, confess to a it, crime that you didn't commit. That I it, yes. This is the thing. I mean, honestly, I feel that I could not be coerced into confessing something I didn't do, and I think most people feel that way. But I've done this show long enough not to sit in judgment of anybody. Because what I learned is that we are more alike than we are different. And you, you never know what circumstance would make you do that. What Michael Crow was a young kid at the time and was ultimately proven innocent because of DNA evidence. Now he's 25 years old and we're going to talk to him a little
0: later on.
1: But first, I want you to meet a man who made national news also as a teenager, once described by prosecutors as a cowardly killer. That's what they said he was. A spoiled rich kid who wanted to kill his parents for their fortune. Marty Tancliffe denies that even though he did confess to the murders, like Michael Crow, he says his confession at the time was false and that it was coerced by the police. And here's some background on Marty's story.
6: Police
5: emergency.
1: This is Marty Tankliff. 33 are driving about here. I need an ambulance... Here are the facts that Marty Tankliff and the Suffolk County Police Department agree on. On September 7th, 1988, at 6.14 in the morning, Marty Tankliff calls 911.
0: ...from the sun. He's gushing
1: blood from the back of his neck. Within minutes, police arrive at the Tankleth home.
0: Martin Tankleth, 17 years old, said that his mother and father were both stabbed.
1: Moments later, paramedics discover Marty's father, Seymour, on the floor in his office, unconscious and bleeding profusely from a stab wound to his neck. He is rushed to the hospital in a coma. Marty's mother, Arlene, is found dead in the bedroom, nearly decapitated, her throat slashed. Marty tells police he thinks his father's business partner, Jerry Steuerman, is behind the attacks. He said Steuerman owed his father hundreds of thousands of dollars and was the last to leave a card game at the Tanklef home the previous night. But here's where Marty and the police stories began to differ. Lead detective James McCready noted Marty was oddly unemotional when police arrived on the scene.
5: I think he would have been crying. I think he would have been shaken been very upset. He's sitting there with his legs crossed and his hands folded over his knees. It it struck me odd that he would be uh, so calm and didn't appear to be uh, upset.
1: But Marty says he was unemotional because he was in shock. When he's brought in for questioning, Marty believes he's helping the police piece together the murder. What he doesn't realize is that he is their prime suspect for several hours, Marty denies any involvement in the attacks. So police try a different tactic.
5: When I saw I wasn't getting anywhere with the questioning, I came up with an idea. I tricked him. Yes, I did. I made believe that an officer at the hospital called. They had pumped his father full of adrenaline, that he had come out of his coma, and that he had said, Marty, you did it.
1: That's when Marty's story suddenly changes, sealing his fate. Well, not only did his story change, 17-year-old Marty actually confessed to murdering his parents. During his interrogation, police say Marty told them he used a barbell and a kitchen knife to commit the crime and even asked for psychiatric help because he thought he might be possessed. Police and prosecutors were certain they had their man, but Marty never signed that confession. So as a result of his confession, Coerced or not, Marty was charged with double murder, facing a possible life sentence in prison. He went to trial, he took the stand. In court, Marty insists his confession was a result of being tricked by detectives. As they build their case against Marty, prosecutors describe tension in the Tankleth home. Marty and his parents argued about chores and plans for his future. After nine weeks in court, the jury revealed their verdict.
0: How do you find? Ask the defendant, Martin Tankliff, as to count two, murder, second degree, guilty. Yes.
1: Marty Tankliff was sentenced to 50 years to life for the murders of his parents. After waging a 17-year battle from prison to prove that he was innocent, he was finally freed, and all charges against Marty were dropped. Please welcome Marty Tankliff. Thank you. I gotta tell you, when I'm looking at your face when the verdict is being read, it made me feel a little choked up. What do you feel when you see that?
6: I don't ever like looking at that video because Mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine that was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And all I ever remember about is hearing my family scream in the background, and knowing I never knew when I'd see them as a free man again.
1: Mm -hmm. What kept you fighting? Uh, well, my pre- family.
6: Yeah. Uh, I knew I was innocent. My mm-hmm. family is with me today. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother's sisters, my father's brother, have been with me ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't a day that I didn't wake up in prison knowing that they were there for me.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: You know, and you pray that you have a family like I did because that's what got me through it every day.
1: Mm-hmm. So I know you don't like looking at yourself there and don't like going through all of this, but we're on television, and I'd like you to bear with us. Sure. So you went to your mother's funeral after she'd been murdered. And went to your mother's funeral in shackles. In
6: shackles, yes. Mm
1: -hmm. What do you remember about that?
6: Very little. I remember I was still in a state of shock. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's never been a time where I could grieve. I mean, I was facing murder charges back then. uh, And now is a point where I've started to get my life back, and I can kind of move forward a little bit.
1: What do you remember? Because your interrogation was not videotaped. Correct. Okay.
6: Um, It was a hostile environment. I remember that, you know, I kept saying, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. And they kept saying, we don't care. Mm -hmm. You know, just tell us what we want to hear. We want to know it's you. Mm -hmm. And you get to a point where you start doubting yourself. Mm -hmm. You get to the point where you just want to escape that environment. Mm -hmm. And you know you're not telling them the truth, but you just want it to end.
1: Yeah. How long do you recall it going on?
6: Hours. Hours. Um, I couldn't tell you. I remember being burned to the police station when it was light outside and leaving when it was dark.
1: Now, when you were first brought into the police station, did you know that you were their prime suspect?
6: No. Yeah. Um, all they kept asking me was about my father's business partner, Jerry Steuerman, uh any problems my parents had with mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. Uh, my background, my family. And that's what I thought I was there for.
1: Mm-hmm. Tell me what happened when you woke mm-hmm. up that morning.
6: Um, I woke up. It was supposed to be my first day of school. Mm-hmm. And I found my parents in the As condition. a senior?
1: As, As a, a senior, senior. yeah. yeah.
6: Mm-hmm. Um, I just turned 17 on August 29th. Mm-hmm. And it should have been a great year. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, it changed my life forever.
1: Mm-hmm. So when you discovered your father, he was still alive?
6: He was still alive. Yeah. Uh, I called 911. Mm-hmm. I tried to follow the instructions as best as I could.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: And after I found my father, um, I went looking for my mother.
1: Mm-hmm. And found her? Yeah. Yeah. And so was there a point during the interrogation when you started to believe or think maybe, maybe you did do it?
6: You know, I was always brought up to trust law enforcement. I was brought up that cops don't lie. Mm. Uh, my father was the police commissioner of Beltaire. Um, you know, we lived in a very good neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And you know, when the cops turned around and said, your father said you did it, I started to doubt myself. Because mm-hmm. um, I knew my father would never lie to me. I mean, I knew in my heart and my soul I wasn't responsible for this. When the cops start telling you, we know you did it, and your father said you did it, you start to doubt yourself.
1: Okay. So what did you then do? Did you decide, I'm going to make up the story, or did you think, well, maybe I did, or...?
6: Basically, what ended up happening was I offered to take a polygraph. They refused to give me one. You you asked for a polygraph. I asked for a polygraph right away because I said, I'm not guilty of anything. I didn't do anything. And they never gave me a polygraph. But as the interrogation went along, every time I denied knowing something, or identifying anything, they would feed me facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marty, we know you used this knife. Marty, we know you did this. And I would say, no, I didn't. And they said, just tell us that you did so this can end.
1: And so by the end, you, had, you finally said, I did. Yes. What made you say, I did it?
6: I just wanted to end.
1: So even though, how soon after you confessed, mm-hmm. did you then uh, wait to the trial to then say it didn't happen?
6: Immediately, that day. That day. Uh, the minute I got out of the confines of law enforcement, mm-hmm. I basically said they made me say it. So it was literally that night.
1: Uh-huh. That night. That night. Uh-huh. And so your family believed you?
6: Yeah. They, they've been by me every step of the way.
1: So what did you think, family, when you had heard that first he did confess and then later he said he didn't do it?
7: Well, I, I think the, the what happened that day was that this whole thing, it started bad because the police were lying to us for almost six hours. They kept telling us that Marty was coming. And so they were lying to us while they had him locked up in a room mm-hmm. and were interrogating him. So it, it, the whole thing smelled bad to begin with. Then we finally got a call from Marty. And he told us on that call, he said, I only said it because they made me say it. And we also knew about the partner. I mean, we were aware of the whole family situation. So there was no doubt in our mind from the beginning.
1: Well, Marty and uh, his team of lawyers and investigators believe there is evidence that links Jerry Sturman, a former business partner of Marty's father, to the crime. But authorities have never charged Sturman, nor have they ever considered him a suspect. Why?
6: Well, there's been clear evidence that the lead detective in my case, McCready, um, was friends with Sturman.
1: Despite a huge amount of public support, there's still a few people who believe that Marty is guilty. Our producers called the lead detective on Marty's case, James McCready, uh, for a statement. And here's what he said. He said, he is guilty. He'll always be guilty. There were 12 jurors who convicted him. They were correct. What's, does that uh, affect you at all?
6: You know, Detective McCready has a vested interest in this. We know he had associations with my father's business partner. Anybody who's ever looked at all the facts in my case knows I'm innocent. And you know, I look forward to everybody continuing to look at the facts in my case. I mean, to this day, more witnesses are coming forward, and we encourage people to come forward because I'm innocent. I've always been innocent, and you know, as the days go along, more and more of the truth comes out.
1: Mm-hmm. Sal Kaysen is a psychologist and an expert on false confessions, and so you know, we started the show, Sal, asking that question: Would it be possible for any of us here or those of you watching to be coerced into confessing? And you
7: say? It happens. Uh, you know, this is not a theory. It's not speculation. If you look at the known cases from DNA exonerations, for example, and, and those are the ones you just can't dispute, in about 25% of the DNA exoneration cases that are out there, there were confessions and evidence as a contributing factor. And those DNA exoneration cases, those are the lucky few who had DNA in their cases and the DNA right. saved and preserved to be tested. So that's the tip of the iceberg. We know it happens. We know it happens, yeah especially
1: with, is it it in cases it's easier to coerce somebody who is younger?
7: Oh, absolutely. There are some risk factors, and some of the risk factors have to do with who the suspect is. Marty was 17 years old. He'd never been in trouble before. He wasn't street smart in that way. He was raised to trust the police. He was in a state of shock, and when they brought him in, I mean, he just found his parents dead early in the morning, and when they brought him into the station, he wasn't even wearing shoes. He was half-dressed. He didn't have his glasses. He was in a state that puts him in a state of vulnerability.
1: No, which is interesting because uh, in Michael Crow's case and in in, in, in Marty's case, and, and I'm sure in many others, the police reaction is, well, there wasn't a lot of emotion. I'm wondering, doesn't the police department consider lack of emotion or shock also as an emotion? Because we all, you know, are aware of what happened to the Menendez brothers. They were crying and screaming on the lawn, and, oh, my God, and it turns out, they did murder their parents. So there's a range of emotion.
7: Exactly. There is no one way to react to trauma. And psychologists right. who study reactions to trauma know that some people fly into a state of hysteria, but other people shut down, go numb, and appear emotionless. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make them killers. The police are not psychologists in that regard. And to make, to, to, to make an inference about somebody being a liar or a truth-teller, a killer or a not-killer, on the basis of whether or not they're emotional, there's just no, there's just no evidence for that.
1: All right, so let's talk about how you ended up sitting here today. Uh, Carlene Kovacs, who is uh, one of our Skypers today, uh, happened to be at a party, is what I heard, Carlene. You were at a party and overheard somebody say something?
3: Yeah, I was at an Easter dinner and some guy told me that he was involved. He was there and he pretty much committed the, the crime and Marty didn't. And what did you do? Um, Well, first of all, I was in a state of shock. Um, I didn't want to tell anyone, because it was almost too hard to believe. All right, and so what, they're just discussing it
1: at Easter dinner, past the ham, and this is what happened?
3: You know, we were having a conversation, and he just started talking about exactly what he was doing. He was hiding behind bushes. Um, His adrenaline was flowing. Um, In brief, he had to get out of there, you know, because he was going to get caught.
1: So you did what with that information?
3: Well, I held on to it for two years because I was in shock and I was in fear of my own life because who am I? I mean, if he could kill two people and I was pretty much nobody and maybe he oopsed and slipped to me, you know, I was in in fear and shocks that I I knew this information. Uh, Eventually what I did after two years, I found a private investigator that I felt comfortable with and he then in turn brought me to Marty's then it, um, attorney, Mr. Gottlieb, mm-hmm. and I had given a statement to him.
1: OK, and so you gave the, a statement to then Marty's attorney. yeah, My Correct. trial attorney. Your Bob trial Gottlieb, attorney, yes. yeah. And that's when things started moving?
6: Actually, it stalled. It uh, stalled. And it wasn't until my family hired J. Peter that he started from you know, scratch, and he started uncovering additional witnesses in addition to calling Kovac.
1: I should say police investigated Carlene's claim, but discredited it. And is it your theory that they discredited it because it's in their interest?
5: Of course it's uh, their interest at that point. They already have an arrest and they have a conviction. That's one of the problems with our country. The district, with the legal system, the district attorney's offices will not admit a mistake or even look at it.
1: Okay. So then Jay Sol Peter, who's the private investigator that ultimately set Marty free, what do you think happened? You took that information that uh, Carlene had given I... to his attorney.
5: Oprah, for once, he finally got a, had a, a true investigation. Marty was arrested, never had an investigation. He was arrested on a confession that was, there was not one thing in Marty's confession that was consistent with the crime. So I felt Marty needed an investigation, and God willing, God led me right through to this day.
1: So give us an example when you say not one thing in the confession that was consistent with the crime.
5: In Marty's alleged confession, which is written by Detective uh, McCready, yeah. he said Marty used the kitchen knife. Well, the kitchen knife had a little red on it, but it was watermelon. Also, they said the barbell. Marty struck family, his family, with the barbell. There was no blood. There was the blood evidence was totally inconsistent with the, with the way that Marty allegedly said he killed his parents. So Marty never had a true police investigation. I was hired. I read the case. I was dumbfounded by this alleged confession that he was even convicted. So Marty had to have an investigation. And that's when the family brought me in.
1: But do you believe he was convicted? And you believe you were convicted Basically, based upon the confession that you had previously given, the false confession.
5: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That and... The jury couldn't overcome that. Correct. So are police allowed to lie during interrogations? Uh,
7: American police are allowed to lie about the evidence. And in Marty's case, they told a series of lies. I mean, here's this kid who's in shock, and when you wouldn't break him down, because every time Marty told his story, the detective called him a liar. And that process went on and on and on for hours. To break him, he started to tell a series of lies. He told Marty, for example, that his mother was involved in a struggle and that she had hair in her grasp. Obviously, that belonged to the person who had assaulted her. And that we have analyzed the hair and it was yours. Well, that was a lie. Mm-hmm. Then they had to reconcile the fact that despite the bloody crime scenes, Marty was clean. He didn't have blood all over him. And they continued to insist to him that he must have showered that morning. And he said, no, I didn't. They said, well, we did a humidity test and it shows the shower was used that morning. Well. There's no such thing as a humidity test, even in CSI. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then then you can imagine Marty at this point kind of like a boxer who's dazed and and weak in the knees about to go down. They lower the boom, and McCready goes out and stages a phone call, comes back and says, essentially, Marty, we've got good news and bad news. The good news is your father has emerged from his coma. The bad news is he said you did it. And in doing that, he cites to Marty the person in his life he trusts the most. That's right. And so Marty breaks down and says, if my father said I did it, then I must have done it. Is it possible I could have blacked out?
1: Yes.
5: What did you want to say? I mean, Marty, if I had him in an interrogation room, you have to pray that you get the right detective. Because there's no time limits when you go into an interrogation room. I could make him tap dance if I wanted to. I mean, he will not walk out literally until he confesses. They don't time you. You have them in that room, and they have to work on this system of interrogations.
1: Well, I want to get to our next Skyper, who is Mark Howard. Mark has known Marty since they were children. He joins us from his office at Georgetown University, where he teaches political science. Now, you've been following this case, uh, Marty's case, since he was arrested. You were uh, a senior the same year, and you all were expecting that, you know, Marty would show up for class, and then this happened. So if you're a senior in high school, I'm sure this was the biggest deal ever. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I should say I've known Marty since the age of three. We actually went to lovey-dovey preschool together (laughs) uh, in elementary, (laughs) junior high, and high school. Uh I remember very well that first day of our senior year of high school. The word got out pretty early in the morning that something happened to Marty's parents. We were just completely shocked. There was disbelief. Uh-huh. And then it's, everybody's concern was for Marty. It never occurred to us that Marty could be considered a suspect. It was always, is Marty okay? We were all worried for Marty. But then when you heard that Marty had confessed, what did everybody think?
1: Well, and you in particular, let's just talk yeah, about Yeah, well, it.
2: That, that became very confusing. I mean, when the, when the headlines came out, kid confesses to murdering his parents, that seems like a pretty much of a slam-dunk case. Right. Once the... Details started to emerge about the interrogation, about the behavior of the business partner, Jerry Stewartman, which hasn't quite been mentioned. A week later, he disappeared, staged his own death, was found several weeks after that in California, had changed his appearance. There was some very suspicious behavior surrounding the case, and it became clear that this was much more than just a case of a simple confession. And so you wrote a letter
1: for the newspaper. I was
2: actually the editor of our high school newspaper. I managed to dig up a copy right here. Wow, the purple parrot. Purple parrot, yes. And what were you you saying back then, Mark? Well, I wrote the uh, article about the case and came out in our our October uh, 1988 issue. And it was a a neutral story that was trying to cover all sides of the case. But really, what I was pointing to were a a lot of the evidence was showing, indicating Marty's innocence, or at least a much more complicated case than the prosecutors were trying to convey. And in that same issue, I actually wrote the, an editorial, which I have here, which was called Irresponsible Journalism, which condemned the mainstream media for basically serving as kind of the mouthpiece of the prosecutors. Wow. And really abandoning the presumption of innocence, which is supposed to be the backbone of this country. And so now looking back on this piece, you know, which I wrote as a very naive and idealistic 17-year-old, you know, I'm very proud of it because I got this story right.
1: Wow, even the Purple Parrot knew. (laughs) So, Mark, is it because of your involvement in this case, I hear you're now going to go to law school?
2: Yes, that's true. Uh, Not only am I a full-time professor, a very active parent, a part-time tennis coach, uh, but now I'm a first-year law student. Uh, And this has really been inspired by Marty uh, and the fact that, in following Marty's case and getting closely involved with Marty, I have realized that there's so many other Martys in there in prison, and the system really is broken. And something needs to be done about it. So uh, I'm going to contribute to that effort. And well, you're, Marty... re- you're
1: a real friend to hang in there for 20 years. That's really something. Yeah, he's... That's a friend. <laughs> well, last week, Marty took us back to the small town on Long Island where he spent his childhood.
6: This is Port Jefferson Harbor. Um, the community where I grew up it brings back a lot of old memories. Right down the road from where I grew up, there was a beach where my mother and I used to go walking Every memory is special with my parents. Um, you know, they embraced me, they love me, I love them. My
3: super perfect marvelous son. He made me very proud of you. Thank
6: you. You really did. Without a doubt, I lived a charm life. Um, you know, I essentially I got everything as a kid that I wanted. I mean, you know, for years I had a hard time admitting it, but you know, when you think back of everything that I had as a kid, I
1: was spoiled. Congratulations. Thank you, I appreciate that. Since his release from prison, Marty has become something of a celebrity in his tight-knit Long Island community.
7: Thank you. We're just very happy
1: Oh, you? thank you very much. I appreciate
6: okay. that. With thank you. Thank lots you. I luck. appreciate that. <laughs> you know, everywhere I've gone, it's kind of that same reception now. It just proves the fact that once all the facts have gotten out there, the people who knew me, the people who follow the case know the truth.
2: I always thought Marty was innocent. I, when I looked at all the facts, it just completely made no sense to me. Appreciate it. I'm happy for you. You, you so deserve it. I'm I, so glad for it. you. Thank you. You know, thank you.
6: Being free, being able to drive around, is absolutely incredible. Um, you know, it's fantastic. I mean, being able to do what you've dreamt about for years and years and years is just an incredible feeling. When I got out of prison, uh, my cousins. Picked me up and I came back to Ronnie Carroll's house. This is a good one though. That's
7: a good yeah. That was my junior prom. Yeah.
3: We were we were con- very concerned that Marty
7: would lose his soul, lose his innocence, lose his uh, as, as one of his lawyers calls it, boyish charm, and and that didn't happen. Um, he managed to keep himself above all that, and that was we were we were pleased to see that. And uh, he's come home with determination to. to go forward and to improve his life and and improve himself. You know, we always say that, thank God, we all stuck
6: together. We fought as a team, and we've won as a team. um, But we're far from over. um, And we won't stop.
1: So let me ask you, what is it like to be uh, free after spending, really, half of your life Uh. uh, for a crime that you did not commit? You were going to school while you were there.
6: Uh, While I was in prison, I obtained an associate's degree. Mm -hmm. uh, And shortly after I got out on December 27th, I was talking about going back to college in September. Um, But my cousin, Ron, gave me a little tough love. And he uh, encouraged me to enroll as quickly as possible. So back in January, I started my first semester. And next week, I start my fourth semester at Hofstra. Wow. Um, You know, it's been a whole new learning experience, too. I mean, between cell phones and Blackberries and iPods and Laptops, I mean, I had access to none of that. Um, but I've adjusted pretty well and learned pretty quickly, too. Can you believe in 20 years what's happened? It is amazing.
1: But when you went in prison, didn't we have cell phones? Or they were like this yeah, big. Yeah, they were, the, they were they this were big. <laughs> over the, you had to strap yeah. them on your back. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
6: Yeah. Um, but I mean, I remember the first day I got out, I had set up an email account. Yeah. And I was emailing people, and it was just amazing, the instantaneous kind of communication. Uh-huh. uh And now I get blamed because I haven't taught some family members how to use email, though.
1: <laughs> yeah. And um, so what do you love the most about your, this freedom?
6: Everything. Um, you know, for 20 years, I basically couldn't do anything. Everything was done for me. Um, I couldn't make certain decisions in my life, because in prison, there's so much left out of somebody else. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, being able to spend time with family and friends, Um, going to school, a cup of coffee, Yeah. um, going to the library, going to the movie, going to the beach. Yeah. Um, You know, the first time I went to the beach was literally two weeks ago. Mm. Uh, You know, going out to put your
1: feet in the sand was just great. Imagine that. Mm. It's
6: it's absolutely incredible that...
1: To decide for yourself what to do with the day.
6: You also learn to appreciate everything in life so much
1: more. Yeah. We wish you the best. Thank you. Wish you the best. In 1998, Michael Crowe was only 14 when he was accused of stabbing his 12-year-old sister Stephanie to death while the rest of his family slept. Like Marty, Michael wasn't emotional when police arrived on the scene, raising suspicions. Then he confessed to police on videotape.
4: All I I know is I'm positive I killed
1: him. But Michael Crowe was innocent. One year after his confession, DNA evidence surfaced. Linking someone else to the crime. Stephanie Crow's blood was found on the sweatshirt of a schizophrenic homeless man named Richard Tewitt. Tewitt had been seen in the Crow's neighborhood on the night of the murder and was eventually found guilty of manslaughter. Michael Crow joins us via Skype from his parents' home near San Diego, California. How old are you now? I'm 25. You're 25? So this was 11 years ago when this happened, yeah.
4: Yeah, it you know, doesn't feel that long, but every time that her birthday rolls around, it just it's a reminder that you know we've lost a lot of time with her.
1: So I ask you the same question that uh, we were talking to Marty about. Why did you confess?
4: I mean, essentially, it's a process that they use that takes away everything you have. I mean, they strip away all your support systems. and You know, once they've taken your family away from you and your friends, they start chipping away at your own beliefs and memory. And, you know, they lie about science. You know, they lied to me the same things. They told me that there's hair that was going to be mine that didn't exist, blood evidence that didn't exist. And you start doubting yourself and you just want to be out of that. You don't want to be told that you're lying anymore. Just you want.
1: Yeah, we just saw, during the the interrogation tape, there's a moment where you say, I'm positive I killed her. At the time that you said that, did you, by that time, did you believe it?
4: I mean, there's parts of me that started to believe it. And a lot of that is just, I wanted them to stop telling me that I was lying and stop, you know, treating me the way they're treating me. You know, if you tell them what you know and believe, they get aggressive. They get in your face and tell you that that's not true, that you're lying. And then when you tell them what they want to hear, all of a sudden they're your best friend. And it's just after so much of, of being treated the way, you know, really aggressively, you just want them to be your friend, so you just start giving them what they want. It's a lot easier that way.
1: And so for you, it was DNA that basically saved you and prevented you from having to have the same experience that Marty tanklifted did, and that is serving time in prison. Based on a confession.
4: Oh, I think it was two things. I think it, the DNA, absolutely. The videotaping of my confession, I think the two things together were really what sealed it.
1: I know you've been sitting here listening to Marty Tankleff's story. As you're sitting here, I'm sure you couldn't help but think, therefore, the grace of God could have been you.
4: Oh, the similarities are just startling.
1: And you were not allowed to go to your sister's funeral?
4: No, I wasn't allowed to, to go to the funeral. It's tough. I never got to say goodbye something that I I live with. I don't know. It's...
1: Do you still have regrets, anger, sadness about that? Obviously some sadness.
4: Uh, I think every day of my life is is touched with with sadness and, and just, you know, obviously a loss. And I try not to be angry. I try to be a good person about that. But it's hard not to be angry at the people who took so much from you.
1: Well, thank you for talking with us today. You gave us a lot to think about. Because as I said at the beginning of the show, I'm sure, myself included, a lot of people believe that could never I could never be coerced into saying I did something that I didn't do. And I'm sure probably now you think that could never happen to you again.
4: No, there's no way. I would never talk to the police again without a lawyer. It's sad that we live in a world where it's like that, but that's the best advice I can give anyone.
1: Thank you so much, Michael. Michael was just saying it's hard not to be bitter, you know, 20 years of your life, you know, taken from you. Are you?
6: you Every day there's a little bit of bitterness and anger, but I don't focus on it. Mm -hmm. Um, If I spend too much energy focusing on my bitterness, my anger towards, you know, the hell that I've been through, I won't be successful. Uh, You know, I start my fourth semester of college. I'm hopefully a year away from starting law school. Uh, And like I said, I think, you know, Michael and I are people who have been through the system who know what's wrong with it, who can make changes to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really look forward to, you know, entering the system as a lawyer and correcting the system. There's so many faults with it. There shouldn't be any more Marty Tankless. There shouldn't be any more Michael Crows.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, you know, society suffers when an innocent person goes away. And we can change the system. We can make changes.
1: Yeah. Does it make you look at men in prison or women differently? Does it make you look at the whole system differently? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh,
6: I'm looking forward to doing something in the future. Uh, you know, working with an Innocence Project, speaking to people, educating people on the faults of the system.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, I've only known you today, but one of the reasons why you seem to be so whole is because you continue to have the family support. They never gave up on you, and they they believed in you. And so anybody who is innocent needs that, needs somebody else to believe.
6: Anybody who, God forbid, goes through a situation like me, Mm -hmm. they should pray they have a family like me. I mean, my mother's sisters, my father's brother, my entire family has been by me every step of the way. I've had tremendous support from friends like Mark Howard and many others, Mm -hmm. uh, and just tremendous community support. And you need that.
1: Yeah. And I think you might want to give a shout out to Carlene, too, because we're going Kovacs. to the, uh, oh. yeah.
6: I've, I've always said if it wasn't for Carlene Kovacs, uh, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, I've said, when, you know, if it wasn't for my family, if it wasn't for Jay, if it wasn't for so many people who have been involved in my case, I wouldn't be where I am today.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Marty. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe rate and review this podcast join me next week for another oprah show the podcast and i thank you for listening